if you, I've changed the title of this. I don't know how keyed in you were to the previous titles. The original idea when we were just discussing this was I was going to get more into media um, in this discussion, thinking movies and all, um, and how you can uh, relate that and be an apologetic like witness in that realm. But I figured that um, we could save that for a later date and get into the foundational issues first in hopes that we continue more of these discussions later. I'd rather lay the groundwork um, now uh, and be able to have an, a, a more contextualized discussion in future if we uh, get around to it. So uh, you'll see I have culture, art, and the story of God. And so we're going to start with culture. Um, so if I were to ask you, like, what is culture? Or what will we be talking about when we discuss culture? Feel free to say anything that comes to mind. What grows in yogurt? <laughs> yeah, what grows in yogurt? Yeah. Sorry, hold on. Okay, so habits of a certain group of people. Way of living. Way of living. Okay. Yeah. The like-mindedness of a certain group. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah, if I were to offer a definition, it's not mine, but uh, it's a, one I appreciate quite a bit. Um, uh, first thing on your sheet there, we could say it's the collective aspirations of a given people in a certain time as expressed through what they produce or cultivate. So we get culture from this idea of cultivating things that grow. And so uh, this would certainly include arts and entertainment, like I had discussed at the beginning or mentioned at the beginning, but would also include whatever sciences a group of people are engaged in, the discoveries, hypotheses they have, um, any ambitions, um, achievements that they search for or try to reach for in various fields. Um, but uh, ultimately what we call culture is a reflection of whatever it is that a given people are trying to cultivate, something that they are trying to create. Um, so uh, when we try, uh, when we see any group of people, whether it be us or others, um, they are trying to cultivate something, uh, they try to cultivate largely based on um, what their cultivation efforts, excuse me, are driven by what they value and what they desire. So um, this is why just a second ago when I asked you what is culture, similarly to what we would see like in a history class or anything, we're describing culture as like a people group's belief systems, their traditions, what they think and feel about certain things. And we uh, discern those things through things that they've created and communicated those things uh, through. So they cultivate things that express their values and desires, as do we. Um, if we put it in theological terms and more succinctly, we cultivate what we worship. Um, we engage in culture like as naturally um, as we worship anything because we are made to do that. We're made to engage in culture in this way. 
Um, we even have explicit commands from God to engage in culture making. So the first instance of God commanding us to create culture would be Genesis 1.28. Um, in Reformed thought, this is often referred to uh, as the cultural mandate. Um, so be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion. This is considered the cultural mandate. Um, additionally, if we go even broader, um, the Great Commission sometimes in Reformed thought is referred to as the second cultural mandate, um, where the intent is similar, but the context has changed with the coming of Christ. So we have a command to engage in culture uh, through the cultural mandate of Genesis 1 and the Great Commission. And these are two like specific um, clear um, forms of the biblical goal of human life. Um, so just a little bit about the first cultural mandate um, given to Adam and Eve at their creation. God defined their task on earth as follows. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So God commands us and them to create. So they are both to create worshipers through physical birth at the time and expressions of worship with what he's given us. So um, uh, there Adam and Eve um, are to uh, display the image of God and the power of God's lordship by taking control over the world to God's glory. Um, and that is just an evidence of showing, of creating a, a cultural um, event, if you will, of man exercising godly lordship over something that's been created um, and is under their lordship. Um, but before we get to the Great Commission part, I want to contrast a little bit um, the cultural mandate given to Adam and Eve there with its clearest expression in the inverse in Genesis 4. So um, we have the cultural mandate there at 1 um, and the abuse of it in Genesis 4 with the beginning of the first culture we see described. So if we remember what's in Genesis 4, we have the story of Cain who killed Abel out of envy uh, for his lesser offering to God when it was rejected by God. God curses him, uh, curses the ground because of Cain, marks him, exiles him. Does anyone remember what Cain did after he was exiled? What's the first thing that he did? After he was exiled, what did he do? That's after that. So in verse 17, if you go to uh, uh, Genesis 4, it says he built a city. So uh, let's look really quickly at verses 17 through 22 of Genesis 4. And let's see what we're looking at here. All right. So verse 17 says, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built, uh, when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad and Arad fathered Mehujael. Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. 
Adabor Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, who was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So what is exactly happening in these couple of verses? What does it sound like? Something we've already looked at this evening. <laughs> it sounds awful a lot to me like he's being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it and having dominion. Now, the diff- uh, we see um, through explicit reference, we have developments of agriculture and the arts and some industry. So we have uh, Jabal, who the father of those who dwell in tents and livestock. Jubal, father of those who play the lyre and pipe. Um, Tubal Cain, he was the forger of all instruments of iron and bronze. These are people creating culture. Um, they are uh, making many things, many of the things that make living in a society um, worthwhile. However, they're not worshiping God with their culture making. So we have Lamech burning God's design for marriage, taking two wives and proliferating that way. And we even have the, the essence of this city. Is Cain's first act as a culture creator was to fashion a city as a monument to his own glory, given it in his own son's name, um, after being cursed by God and offering false worship to him. So what are we to do um, if we desire to create culture for the glory of Christ? Well, let's get back to the second cultural mandate for a moment, the Great Commission. So the Great Commission carries this theme of this cultural mandate into the New Covenant. Believers are to fill the earth with worshipers of God and thus take dominion of all lands. In this way, uh, we have the prophecy of Isaiah being fulfilled, like the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord um, as the waters cover the sea. Um, the Great Commission, therefore, can be understood as like a republication of the cultural mandate for the church age with the appropriate context changed. So it's going to feel almost like we shift um, a little bit here where I'm thinking this is as broad as th- this will be. This is co- general culture, um, all manner of things that are uh, involved in culture, We are commanded to to be a part of it, and we can do so in faithful worship to God. And many of these things, as we even see in the example of Cain, are good in and of themselves, but can still be used and done outside of a proper worshipful heart towards the Lord. Um, So uh, it is, I would say that it is right and good for us to both explore and inhabit the earth and to use its resources, things that are given to us um, by God for in and of itself, but keeping an eye on the, the heart of our mandate is for the worship of God, and that is necessarily involved in the preaching of the gospel um, in, in the church age. So if we... Um, uh, let's turn to art for just a moment, okay? So if I were to answer the question why art, or pose a few more questions about it. 
Um, this is how, this is as narrow as it's gonna get. I considered narrowing it down to one uh, medium of art, but I think it's better to begin with the broader concept and there's tons and tons and tons of things could go under this umbrella. But uh, what is it about art which uh, contributes practically nothing to our existence, meaning we could live without art. We could, we could survive without art for sure. What is it about art that we can't seem to live without? Because there's not a culture on earth, there's not a people group ever devised that hasn't produced on some level artistic expression. And I don't know if I have a, an exact answer. I do have some scriptural material and some scriptural reasoning, I believe, as to why it exists. And partially that's from demonstration not necessarily um, from Scripture's explicit uh, dis descriptions. Um, so the next little blank there, I'm going to throw a little Latin at you. Um, ex nihilo. Okay. So I have almost E-X space N-I-H-I-L-O. Ex nihilo means out of nothing. And this is how it's described, uh, this is how we describe the way in which God created the world. Before God created the world, there was nothing. Then he said, let there be, and there was. Creating art in its many facets and many designs is the closest thing we as people, uh, closest time we'll ever get to creating ex nihilo, where we have um, uh, this is the closest we can get to showing the image of God in us as creator. So when we build, we'll build things that are useful and that can definitely have artistic merit to it as well. Um, it's a way that we carry out uh, God's image is making things that are useful to be sure. Um, but God did not make us or the world because he needed to because he needed us to, to, to exist, for him to live. Um, I think in a way he made us because he wanted to exult in his own artistry. He wanted to display himself as an artist. He wanted to convey um, some deeper sense of himself um, to tell a story with the universe. Um, so anytime we pick up a pen or a paintbrush or like me, varied stringed instruments, or you pluck on the piano. Um, that is as close as we get to creating something out of nothing, is we have what's been given by God in his good world. We subdue it. We rule over it, make it work for us, and we can create uh, wonderful aesthetics, both sonically, uh, visually, um, that communicate in some ways realities to a greater degree than otherwise. Um, and I don't, I like talking about this subject, but it is very hard to talk about this subject because it seems so amorphous. 
when you describe it this way, or if you try to wrap your head around it. Um, is um, evokes emotion and feeling, and I think that's what God wanted us to have: is a yeah. feeling of the wonder, or if we see something that's not so nice, anger at it. Yeah, I think He wants. Us that's to what I'm trying to get at when I say He's trying to reveal something, a sense of Himself that's deeper than if He had just said it informationally. Or even in our own brains, if we could conceive it as practical, uh, if that makes sense. Um, so, in the act of trying to create art, um, we can take what God has given us, exercise dominion over it, subdue it, and produce fruit um, unlike any other. Um, so, I think. Uh, considering the number of people in this room, there's a high likelihood that a number of you have experienced um, some artistic expression that maybe transported you or resonated with you. I think the best art um, can take some experience or moment of the world and interpret it in a way that doesn't just entertain but enlightens. Um, so I want to try something, it's not experimental, but it's out of the norm for me, okay? I'm going to share with you one of my favorite poems, which is actually a hymn. And uh, my history with this is the first time I had ever experienced it was through a musical setting. And throughout my years, going back to it, the more and more that I revisit revisit it, the less and less I listen to any musical settings of it. Because I've found that the text itself is so much greater as an art form than any of the other um, extra art forms that have been added to it. And I find much greater meaning in just reflecting on the way it communicates what it communicates. And so I would hope to, if I perform this well enough with you, um, hopefully transport you, hopefully allow it to resonate uh, with you the way in which the, the author would hope. And I want us to, we'll refer back to this um, with our discussions of form and, and other things here in a moment. So what I want us to do is, um, I'm going to read four verses, but what I want to ask of you is to close your eyes so that we can just focus and try to listen. And I'll try to communicate this as I often read it to myself. Okay. Oh, love that wilt not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O light that followest all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray, that in thy sunshine's blaze its day may brighter, fairer be. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain 
and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust, life's glory dead. And from the ground, their blossoms red. Life that shall endless be. You can open your eyes. My experience uh, with that hymn has always been one of awe in the way that it reveals to me the place of the author at the time, the truths that are strengthening his faith, and his great hope and joy in the midst of his sorrows. Um, That was a poem written by George Matheson. Um, who, I'll I'll read a quick quote of his own uh, description of how this hymn came to be. Um, He says, My hymn was composed in the manse of Vanellen on the evening of the 6th of June in 1882. I was at that time alone. It was the day of my sister's marriage and the rest of the family were staying overnight in Glasgow. Something happened to me which was known only to myself and which caused me the most severe mental suffering. The hymn was the fruit of that suffering. It was the quickest bit of work I ever did in my life. I had the impression rather of having it dictated to me by some inward voice than of working it out myself. We have in literature, good prose has something that bad prose doesn't. Even further, poetry um, has something that good prose doesn't. Um, we even see in the scriptures that the poetry in scripture has dimension that is lacking in its prose. And any proposition can be heightened if expressed in poetry or artistic prose um, as opposed to some bland, clunky, or like formulaic statements. Um, I'll come, I'll refer back to this a couple of times, but I want to, I quickly uh, move to what art for a moment to give us a little bit of some tools about how to engage in some art so that in future we might actually create or even uh, critique art for the sake of uh, discerning what the worldview of the artist is um, and being able to engage with those worldviews um, for the gospel. Um, So I'm going to share... Uh, Francis Schaeffer's Four Standards of Judgment. Um, I have some quibble, uh, quibbling with one, but I, uh, we'll deal with that if I feel like it, I guess. Um, so the first one he has here, Standards of Judgment for, I think, any artistic endeavor, will be technical excellence. So a lot of folks can tell when something is done technically well in terms of can you draw a circle that is a circle? Um, or can you draw a line that's straight? I can't do neither, probably. Um, but that is one standard of judgment. Is something done well? And this can be many, many different things. If we're dealing with art, it's how well does the artist use form? How well do they uh, use lines to convey perspective? How do they use color? How do they use textures of paints? Um, these kinds of things can all go under the umbrella of technical excellence. Um, the second one for him is validity. 
So this one's, uh, I understand where he's going with this one. He basically says, um, for validity, uh, it's whether an artist is honest to himself and to his worldview as opposed to if his art is only for like money's sake or for some cultural acceptance of some kind. So if I were to describe it in different terms, I might say, he would say, unless the artist is creating art convictionally, then it is invalid in his estimation. Um, I don't know where he gets that. I understand that perspective um, and I'll, I'll leave it there. Um, I tend to agree 85% on that. Um, third, and this is probably most telling for our apologetic stuff, is intellectual content. So that which reflects the worldview of the artist. Okay? Um, if we tried to just apply this to, say, the poem that I read a minute ago, like, we would probably say that the worldview of the artist is one of a Christian person who deals with significant suffering but tethers their hope to the promises of God um, and in that suffering has experienced very real joy in light of it and significant hope for the resurrection. Um, we can gather that by his own words. He says, um, he addresses love, that has captured him, it doesn't let him go. So he is in the grasp of love. His soul is weary. Um, uh, I, I, wanna, I don't wanna get ahead of myself on this because uh, I'd be tempted to just do a breakdown of this whole poem. Um, the, the fourth standard under Schaefer's four standards is the integration of content and the vehicle. So he's thinking about how well does the artist integrate what he's trying to communicate with the medium or vehicle through which he's trying to communicate. So art involves how well the artist has suited whatever vehicle he chooses to his message. Um, and oftentimes for artworks uh, that are truly great, stand the test of time, um, some of which uh, have great acclaim, there is a significant correlation between their use of the style and what they're attempting to communicate. Um, so let's, but yeah, before we move on, let's take a moment. I just want to look a little bit deeper at this poem. Okay. So, uh, the first verse, uh, I have a hard time separating, um, the uncorroborated, uncorrobor uh, story for why this hymn was written. If you do any research on a love that will not let me go, sometimes you will hear the story that. He wrote this in despair after his fiance broke off their engagement. We don't have any historical info to confirm that. However, I do think if that were true, um, it makes the first verse and the fourth verse um, even more potent. And I'll explain why. And um, I'm applying some of these standards that Schaefer has relayed out to say why I think this poem is great. <laughs> okay, uh, sim simply what I'm doing here. The first verse, he has love that won't let him go. He's weary in his soul. The second line is, I give thee back the life I owe. He's already committed to following Christ, 
And if I recall in the story, that was related to why they broke off the engagement, was his uh, continued work in theological studies, I think, and it was becoming a problem. And she was like, I'm done with you, I quit. And um, he's like, I've committed to follow the Lord in this way. I'm weary, but I still give you my life. He goes through all of these emotions, verses two and three. And then into verse four, we have, O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead. So uh, potential temporal benefits of having a, a loving wife and all of this has now gone for him following Christ in the way that he was led to. He says, nevertheless, I lay life's glory down and I reap from it the joy of Christ and eventually eternal life. Um, I would say um, for technical excellence, his command of, the, of uh, the text, the English language at his time is superb. We have four separate verses with four uh, related subjects, love, light, Joy cross. We have, um, dang phone, sorry. Um, we have uh, par- some parallels and contrasts to convey. So here we, verse two is my favorite for that. I think he goes, "O light that follows all my way, the light that's always guiding, I yield my flickering torch to thee. Faith weak under pain." looking to the light that guides his way in this time of, uh, of confusion. Then he says, my heart restores its borrowed ray. So his light, uh, the, heart, the light of his heart restores the light. Um, this is an example of, uh, I'll slow my brain down a little bit. Um, yeah, so in this, God is the light that guides. It's also the um, oh man, what's the, the substance, which is the sunshine of God. And uh, he is essentially the derivative light, the ray from that source. So I restore, my heart restores. It's a borrowed ray, that love that came before. Love from God restores borrowed ray, love from uh, God to him. That in its blaze, looking at its love, um, that it may brighter, fairer be. So as his flickering torch is waning, he's already, he knows he's a derivative light. He gets his light from God, from the love of God. If he basks in it, his day will be brighter and fairer. Um, from then, from the strength of his heart being strengthened with the presence of God and the love of God, then that's where the joy seeks him in, in through pain. And because of this unyielding joy, then he can say, Um, my heart basically can't subsist in sorrow for too long because I'm too optimistic. (laughs) Uh, He says, uh, almost, I love the way he describes it, almost against his will. This is uh, God working in him to to make him feel like Christ, feel in the way Christ would have us to feel. He says, I trace the rainbow through the rain. Like, I still can see the rainbow through the rain because the love of God has restored, uh, restored the light of my heart and this joy has reached me. And in that moment, in feeling that joy, in that pain, having been uh, restored by the presence of God, then he feels the promise that God made that he will make all things well 
that his promises are not in vain. He feels again uh, what his mind knows. That this pain will be temporary. It will make him more like Christ and everything will be made well in the future. And then uh, he gets to imagine the difference. So if we go to integration of content and vehicle for verse four, okay? He could have said, um, I don't want to stop remembering the gospel um, because I know that I will be resurrected one day. But he wanted to display in a more forceful way the reality of feeling what that truth is. And so what does he say? He says, O cross that liftest up my head, gospel story, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I don't want to be removed from the the rumination, the remembering of the gospel. Thusly, I lay in dust down to the ground. All life's glory, dead. I lay down my life, all earthly ambitions, all for the sake of the gospel. Um, And from that ground, their blossoms red. Laying down in dust, resurrection of new life. Not just life, life to the full that will endless be. So, I could go on for ages probably about how artful I think this uh, poem is. Where you have the marriage of technical excellence. You have no hint of invalidity, if you even say a word like that. Um, Clear biblical worldview being expressed as well as it being integrated wonderfully in an artistic medium. So, now, that'll bring us to the, the last section, okay? So I've called it the story of God engaged. I've gone on and on about this great poem from the 1880s. But the question for us is, if we want the gospel message, uh, the story of God, which should be our worldview, um, to guide our own culture making, uh, we must take into account the when we are living in. Okay? So let's look back at a moment to the definition of culture with a, a new emphasis, the, collection, the collective aspirations of a given people in a certain time as expressed through what they produce or cultivate. Okay? So what we'll be aiming to do is not just create art, but create art for our time, art for our time that is um, good art that communicates well the gospel message, and the way in which we make that art is also affected by our worldview as the gospel. And so in when you uh, get into some discussions of world missions, you'll hear um, this first definition I've got you for under there called contextualization. Okay. So um, in a lot of the discussions of trying to uh, preach the gospel in foreign contexts, you'll have discussions about what does it look like um, for 
the good news of Jesus Christ to be experienced in that cultural context. Um, though we have significant differences in this room, we have a lot of cultural overlap between us, um, many of us being white, many of us being American, many of us being natural-born American, uh, many of us having multiple generations that have lived in this nation. Those are all overlapping cultural contexts. But then again, we still have the differences of, I grew, in, grew up in coastal South Carolina, Jacob was in like Wisconsin. Like uh, we sometimes feel like aliens from one another in that regard, but we have significant overlap and enough to communicate. So if I were to try to communicate the gospel in an artful way to Jacob, there may still be um, some ways that I would need to change my expression of that for people from Wisconsin like Jacob to experience it um, in the same way that someone from coastal South Carolina would. Um, so if I were to like revamp just that definition of contextualization for art, I would add this. I would like uh, the goal of a process uh, whereby the universal good news of Jesus Christ is authentically communicated and experienced through the particularities of an artistic medium. So we're, uh, we're trying to contextualize two things, the gospel message and the artistic forms in the time that we're in. Okay? And uh, to do this faithfully, uh, I think is a good... Uh, there's a good a couple of dimensions that we need to be able to discern, and I'll go through these kind of quickly. Um, so th these are from um, Michael Goheen and Craig Bartholomew's book, Living at the Crossroads. It's one of the citations there. Um, they lay out uh, these three dimensions um, for faithful contextualization um, in whatever context. And the first one is creational design. Okay. So if I were to put my hand at, um, I'm trying to think of something that's they're never, they're hardly ever simple. Um, I don't know, uh, maybe like guitar making or something. I'd be like, what is the creational design behind luthiery? Well, one, you're... Uh, it's an easy, easier parallel in that I'm taking trees, finding their inherent qualities from how they're created, leveraging things that we can discern about them, um, how well they, they resonate, how well uh, they, um, how structurally sound are they, uh, they are, the woods that we use for guitars, uh, the tops of acoustic guitars normally. We want a significant... Um, strength to weight ratio where it can be as strong uh, as possible while being as thin as possible. So to make instruments that respond well to musicians and are very loud when they want them to be, very, uh, very quiet when they want them to be, have all this extra dimension, they need to be um, essentially um, hanging on by a thread. Uh, they're as lightly built as possible and there's a sweet spot where uh, guitars, where they sound the best, or a lot of actual um, instruments in Luthery, it's far beyond just guitars. They need to be very lightly built. Um, and this is a, a delicate process, it takes a lot of skill. Um, 
But the, the reason why I would bring up creational design is, well, I can leverage a couple of those things from the way things are created, but I'm creating them to uh, be able to manipulate sound so that music can be made. Um, so if I were to um, engage with someone, another luthier, who doesn't share um, my Christian worldview, I imagine that we'd be creating, uh, we would have significant overlap in our appreciation for what um, occurs in the natural world for creating these instruments. But we'd have significant uh, divergence in between maybe why we even make them um, or the ethical uh, practices of how we acquire some of our materials. Um, that's been a big, this is really esoteric, I suppose, but that's a big deal in the guitar world, having sold guitars for a good while, is they've deforested the heck out of the forests. And so virtually all the woods that are desirable are endangered now um, because of what you could say are unethical uh, foresting practices. Um, so creational design is a way in which we can bridge the gap when trying to contextualize, we can look for the created order in whatever um, artistic endeavor um, we're producing. Um, but the, the second dimension that we need to be aware of is cultural idolatry. So where um, does the culture um, use whatever it is that we're evaluating for idolatry? Um, like, suppose uh, an okay example for this might be like in music, music is used for idolatry constantly. Um, in, in many ways, to promote heinous worldviews, um, to be the, um, the background music for all manner of debauchery and evil. Um, music is often used in this way. So if you were in a cultural context where, say like maybe, maybe in the, in the 60s, when, when rock was not as big a deal, I mean, was a bigger deal, um, you, I probably would not have played rock music in the 60s in churches. Um, justifiably because its only cultural association is with lurid activities and illicit drug use and all of this. Someone like me who grew up completely removed from that, um, my experience with rock music is just the sounds for the most part. So to me, I have no cultural baggage like making rock sounds on guitars, um, but others might. And so as you're engaging in this culture, even if um, you're engaging in the art form where some of these uh, culturally idolatrous things are happening even in your time, uh, you have to walk a fine line between uh, producing art that's similar with a clearly different worldview and producing art that doesn't communicate what you want it to um, because the message isn't clear enough to affect it. Um, Schaefer, in his book I've, I've mentioned there, he has two essays on art in the Bible. He has an extended discussion on there's a, th you'll only know this by doing it wrongly almost, uh, it seemed to be my takeaway from it, where it's like, are you playing rock music that conveys uh, a Christian worldview, or are the people that are receiving your art just hearing rock music and not hearing the gospel? Um, so, that's the the real blurry line. I'd like to, probably could do a whole I'd like to do a whole discussion on that, but I need to think a lot more on that about dealing with the the fine line between um, engaging in something while avoiding its cultural idolatry, especially in the time that you're in. Um, but the third dimension that 
I think we need to keep in mind um, when trying to contextualize the gospel message and contextualize art forms through which to communicate the gospel message is healing potential is what the, the phrase they use. So it's capacity to bring good from it. Um, this, uh, a, a better example for something like that might be like in business. Like what is the potential of someone to act ethically to have a successful business that produces good in the world, um, jobs for uh, people in their employ, um, benefits that help them uh, raise f good families, have work-life balance. These are kinds of issues um, that you need to take into account when trying to contextualize anything. Um, art is a little bit different, um, or it's, it's less expedient to use an example, but uh, trying to think of what would be a, I'm not doing well off the cuff on, on these examples on that, but basically, does it have the potential for you to um, uh, Uphold the creational design, avoid the culture's idolatry with whatever medium you're using, and still produce some healing in the, in the culture um, in spite of uh, the sinful part there. Um, but So that's a lot of information. That's a lot of things. Uh, we have 10-ish minutes left. What I want to do is take any questions, clarify anything, or we can just entertain some art that we like. Um, and if we have, if we, if you have learned something, uh, gotten a sense of something more deeply about God or one of his truths, or had something come alive to you because of a medium, I think that's all fair game for the next few minutes. Um, but yeah. So I, I, unfortunately, I am a math science guy. <laughs> I, Amen. Yeah. Do, do not ask me to interpret a poem that did not go well for me in school. <laughs> uh, when you say arts, you know, I kind of think of you know the, some things like there's the visual arts, there's language arts, there's musical arts, fine arts, whatever, things like that. So I'm intrigued by all this, but I also listened look at some of your thing about your first part there about validity. And yeah. I know a lot of the people back in the Renaissance who are very famous painters and sculptures. Yeah had very fine capability, but weren't necessarily Christian or religious at all. Yeah. But they were they were good at making a buck and good at conveying things. And, yeah. and also we've seen, like how many times we've, have we heard beautiful love songs sung by people who are not even interested in the opposite yeah. sex. So kind of curious how some of this stuff applies. Yeah, that's, the, that's why I'm so murky on his, uh, his definition of validity there. Um, I think he would put most of that into the technical, um, uh, what's the, my brain's mush now, uh, how technically proficient they are at conveying. So in many ways they're, yeah, so this is my main problem with his section there is um, that is meta information. If you know what, what the, how the artist feels about the art he's created, you don't need to have that information to be communicated accurately through a piece of media. Um, and so if I've never had the context that um, basically, yeah, yeah. So basically, yeah, if they sang this love song, wonderful, I'm moved to tears by what was conveyed, not just by the text of the tune, but the performance of it itself. 
Um, I don't need the performer's information. Um, that doesn't nullify the experience I had with that or what uh, information was communicated to me through it. I think where he's coming from mostly with that is from a Christian ethic, ideally, you'd be creating art in a worshipful manner that is uh, for the worship of God. So in his mind, um, if anyone's creating art that's not um, from a position of um, their own uh, affections driving what they do and consistent with how they view the world, then in his mind, there is some invalidity to the artistic expression because it stops at the creation itself. Um, which I struggle with that because most of the people that I enjoy their art, um, some of which you can't even discern their worldview from it. So like one of my favorite musicians on the planet is Pierre, Pierre Ben-Suzan. And he's a French-Algerian fingerstyle guitar player who most of the time what he's playing is just instrumental. Sometimes he's like um, singing nonsense syllables with it or a lot of times he's singing in French um, or Algerian sometimes, but mainly, uh, mainly French. And I don't understand a word of what he's singing uh, a lot of the time. And most of the time it's just instrumental. However, his skill is so great and his ability to communicate certain emotions, even if the information I have is just a title and whatever like musical things he's playing off of from some of our shared background in uh, listening to music. I've been moved many times listening to just his music, which is just sounds he's, he's creating. With, um, and oftentimes I'm ascribing my own meaning to them based off my own experience. So I think he might say all it would take from Pierre for him to have one of his tunes then become invalid is, oh, well, you know, I was hungry and this guy offered me 20 bucks to write a tune and I wrote it. I don't think the art has been invalidated by that. I just think he did it by accident <laughs> uh, or something, you know? Uh, yeah. I want to press just a little bit, kind of a different spin on Jim's point. So... What is the difference between, okay, here's this piece of art, maybe it's not really authentic, but it resonates with people, so it's okay, versus, okay, here's this business deal, and it sounds really great, and it resonates with a lot of people, but it's a sham, yeah. and now that's not okay. Or say, like, someone pushing a false gospel, pushing a prosperity gospel, that resonates with a lot of people, yeah. and you know what, people haven't realized that that's a sham. Yeah. yeah. You know, so what makes the art okay, and you can get away with it, because it's art versus, hey, these other things, like, you see the cracks. Yeah. The so the example I used is more defensible towards that because he's not conveying anything um, necessarily with the music. Now, if he were saying, you know, if you had more faith in Jesus, then you'd be super rich while doing it, then he is depreciating his art by the standard of the, the intellectual content. So he has now produced something that is incongruent with the scriptural worldview through his art, so then we can critique his art and say, well, he fails in this regard because of his worldview is inconsistent with the, the biblical worldview. Um, so there, it's close, um, but not all the way there. Now, so 
the, the we could bring this home even closer and say, okay, what about a hymn that's written by someone who later proved to be a false brother? One of the most famous hymns in Christendom and most well-loved and well-known is It Is Well With My Soul. Um, Horatio Spafford had a less than ideal ending to his life with uh, the religious uh, things that he was doing with his wife uh, towards the end of his life. Not a single word that he wrote in that hymn is untrue. So I may have ruined it for you, um, you now have this meta information that this guy, um, if, to all accounts, did not finish the race very well. Very well may not have been on the track, considering how his life ended. But every single thing that he wrote in that song is still true. So then, all I would say is that song is technically excellent is intellectually sound, and the integration of the content and the vehicle is wonderful. It's just invalid, according to him. But it won't be in, uh, of no use to us, because every one of us, I think, could benefit from the thought of my sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more, praise the Lord. I've written a lot of poems in my life, but I have never, ever sat down with paper and pencil and said, oh, I'm going to write a poem. It always just, it has to come to me. And if it comes, I can't wait to write it down. And I wrote a lot of grief poetry when my husband died, but I always made it end with how God brought me through it. Mm -hmm. That's good. Thank you, baby. And when you, your example, I mean, we, we, we actually study Proverbs and believe it to be God-given, but Solomon's life yeah. is a, it was a shambles. Yeah. So that's where I think he, he fails just a little. I think he could have put some more work at least. I haven't read the, the, the dearth of Schaefer on this, but as was articulated in what I've prepared, I don't think uh, his standard of validity is even... Uh, um, it's, it'll be useless in a lot of cases. Uh, there's too many uh, evidences to the contrary sometimes. Yeah. really, really bright. So most likely in his mind, there's some level of nuance that is not existing in our understanding. Oh, I, I, would, I would guarantee that's the case. Because from our perspective is like, eh, that's not that great. The only thing you listed is if you did it for money yeah. or you did it inconsistent with what you believe. Um, I'd be like, yeah, he's way too intelligent, I think, to, to stand by that, and I'll tell you exactly why. Um, he has even argued in different places in those same essays that you can, in film or drama, depict things that are inconsistent with your worldview, if you're a Christian, because they can serve a purpose in telling a, a story about a greater reality or revealing a truth. Um, but... In just dealing with, is art invalid because the person wasn't engaged in some way um, that, that we would prefer? Uh, yeah, I, don't, I don't think so. Yeah. How was my man who wrote that song? Wasn't he the one whose five children were drowned? Yep. 
And that could have affected him yeah. in a bad way. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't put anything past that. Well, art is always um, a person's perceptive. But let's, for example, my daughter bought this piece, two pieces of art recently. And I don't care for either one of them. You know, and I told her, you know, they're not my thing. She didn't even know what one of the pictures were, was. Yeah. It was a raindrop. It was white, and she didn't even see it, what it was. I had to tell her what it was. Um, so they both moved her. You know, she yeah. enjoyed them. They made, and there was a, on one of them was all about the artist, what her situation was, what she was trying to do. So you could understand the artist's perspective, but I still didn't like it. Yeah. You know, and so sometimes... There'll be someone who will get a lot out of something, and sometimes it has to be another person that facilitates you learning about that photo or that picture or whatever. It's like the, the Bible. We can read it a thousand times and still not understand it until a pastor or someone else comes and kind of goes over it a little bit more, and you start understanding a little bit. View. It's like art is that way, too. Sometimes we don't understand why we like it or don't like it. This is like my favorite area of discussion in this, is why do you feel the things that you do about the things that you feel about? Um, and I would probably argue, if all the information is 100% correct about the way in which your daughter experienced those paintings, I'd say, well, she didn't experience that based off much of anything then, did she? Um, so the question isn't only does something resonate with you, at some point we'll also have to do the work of determining why something resonates with us. And if we can't discern why, then we need to be trepidatious about things that have those qualities, um, only because they affect us in ways we don't understand quite yet. So like, what I mean is, like, I'll, t I'll tell you this. I recently bought a book that's about something that, uh, a thing that I care about. And it was because of three things. It had the word Reformation on it, it had the word worship on it, and it was dark green. I like all of those things. And I was like, that's good enough for me. I don't know why I like dark green. I think maybe just because I'm, I don't know, Irish maybe. Like, I, I tend to like wearing green because I think it looks okay with my complexion and stuff. But I don't have a, a, a meaningful reason as to why I like green. Now, um, if I were to get around to talking about my favorite subject uh, in this regard, which is storytelling, I've learned a lot in the past couple of years really thinking about what stories resonate with me and why do they resonate with me? And if there are things that, uh, if there are stories that I care about, do they stand up to uh, analysis? Um, have I misstepped in my interpretation of them? If so, why did that misinterpretation take place? Did I misremember something? Am I bringing in information from, that's, not inside, that's, uh, that's not in the story to try to explain something in the story that's not there? Um, am I, uh, uh, yeah, basically, do I, do I like the things I like only because there's something outside of me that I like about them? Um, or can they stand up to scrutiny? And can my own perspective on something stand up to the same scrutiny? Um, this would be my favorite discussion to have at a future date about um, evaluating your own perception of art that you consume or media that 
you can see, and that's the most often for me is television and film. Um, so sometimes you get around to the discussion uh, of, well, artist subjective, whatever, um, however you end up defining that. And they'll say, well, then how can you even evaluate it in any way? Well, we live in God's world. There are uh, true, true things in the world from which we refer. Uh, it's through our worldview, through the lens that we'll view everything that we see. And uh, it is probably the quickest way to discern what your worldview actually is rather than what you think it is by the things that move you the most um, or annoy you the most. Um, but I fear I will ramble too much on that and we're five past. We have any like final comments or questions, um, I would like to continue um, this discussion uh, in future. But yeah, anything from anybody? Okay, um, let's pray. And I think uh, we'll we'll get the heck out of here. <laughs> um, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time, um, and thank you for these folks. Um, thank you for uh, all uniting us as a family um, through your story, uh, the story of uh, showing yourself truthfully in the gospel message. Um, thank you for um, your spirit continually guiding us, uh, unifying us in the bond of love, making us more like Christ every day, um, spurring our hearts uh, to trust in you, to um, have our souls feast on the good food of your promises, uh, the promises that we know of from your great story. I pray that um, as we continue to engage the culture that we live in now, that uh, we would both do art for its own sake, do art for your glory, and do art to create a culture that worships you in spirit and truth. Um, continue to, to guide us and change us, strengthen us today. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.